And we're going to continue this morning in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. Uh, before we, we begin, let me pray for us uh, as, uh, as we, we approach God's Word. Father, we are in need this morning. We are in need of listening to you. We are in need of being reminded of what uh, you have done, Jesus, in the course of real human history and what you are continuing to do through your spirit in the course of real human history, even right now in this time. Uh, We pray that you, Jesus, would be proclaimed freely here and that you, spirit, would be blowing in our midst here allowing us to listen and focus, allowing us to have softened hearts and uh, minds that are uh, softened to, to, to listening and understanding what you have to say. We pray that Jesus would be more beautiful to us than he was before. We pray that he would shine through above all things here. We pray for the preacher, the man standing here, that the words that he would be saying would be in accordance with your word, Lord God. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1, this is God's word. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Amen. Well, I oftentimes spend my, my uh, days during, during the week working in a coffee shop. And working in a coffee shop means you get to hear the little bits of conversations 
that are going on all around you. And this week when I was there, I, I heard here one person who was near me uh, telling everyone they saw the same story over and over and over again. I must have heard it probably four different times. And those, those, uh, those repeated stories that we hear in those times, sometimes they're small talk. Or sometimes it's because that we believe that that story is really important. And our story this morning here that, that, that we read of this Jesus feeding of the 4,000, it happened not long after he fed 5,000 people in this similar way. Uh, it was actually just a chapter and a half before in the middle of chapter 6. But this isn't a retelling of the same story. This is actually a different event than that first that we read several weeks ago. It involved different people. It was in a different place. It was, a similar, it was for similar reasons, but different reasons also. What's happening here is it's a revisitation. It's a, Jesus is revisiting some of the themes, and he highlights them that happened in, back when he fed the 5,000. And it's revisited here for a reason. It's not the same story told to us again, but it's from a reminder of the same truth about Jesus here as the main character in both of the stories. And when we hear this again, when we read it here, it gets us to remember Jesus, the main character here, and consider and understand once again who he is. It's intended for us to have our understanding of him continue to be formed. Because that's what reminders are for, right? They refocus us upon what's important. And so our first point this morning that we're going to look at, the first of three, is that reminders are a gracious gift. Reminders are a gracious gift. Again, this isn't the same event of Jesus feeding the 5,000 that, that was told uh, several weeks ago. This is a revisitation, a revisitation of the themes, but this happened for new recipients, entirely new, new people there. Now, there are similarities and differences that we have in here. I mean, some of the similarities we look, what we have here, we have a hungry crowd of people who are following Jesus, which is numbering in the thousands, right? Uh, not just, uh, we have 5,000 the first time, we have 4,000 here. They're hungry, and they, they're, they are out there, they've been following Jesus, they're in a desolate place, and Jesus has compassion on them. They've been with him for a while, they didn't pack a whole lot with them, and so they're hungry. And Jesus looks at them, and he knows that they need to be fed but he is unwilling to just send them off to be fed because he knows that they're going to pass out along the way. And so Jesus looks at them and he looks upon them with compassion. He doesn't want to send them away hungry. And we also have the similarity of Jesus is feeding them with what? With a small amount of bread, a small amount of fish, and he distributes it to them in a similar fashion. He takes the bread, he blesses it, and he breaks it. He tears it. He takes the fish. He does the same thing. He divides it up over and over and over until the thousands of people are fed. It's a, same, it's a similar sort of story there. But there's also, in a, in a story like this where there's a lot of similarities, we need to also, though, focus upon what are the differences. It's not the same story, so what are the differences? Well, for one thing, we have the number uh, the number of loaves is different. But more importantly, the number of, 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 of the, the size of the crowd is different too. And that's something where, where sometimes we look at that. We're like, well, Jesus fed the 5,000 people. And we're amazed at that. Like our minds are blown. And then we hear it again. It's like, oh, it's only 4,000? <laughs> no, it's a lot of people in both times. Massive crowds. 
But most important here is the location. Jesus is feeding these 4,000 people in a different spot than he did the 5,000. On the 5,000, he fed them on the western side of Galilee, which has formed the heart of his Jewish mission there. Here, he's on the eastern side. He's in a much more mixed territory of both Jews and Gentiles. All right, so he's actually feeding both a mixture of Jews and Gentiles here. He feeds them alike. He feeds them together. He has them all sit down together and eat. And so we have, though, these two constants, though, in these stories. These two constants here, and though we have the giving of bread, particularly the giving of bread by Jesus, and then we also have the disciples. The, the only two real, real, the only same characters that we have in both of these two stories are Jesus, for one, and then the disciples. Everyone else is probably an entirely different crowd in all likelihood. And so this was for the disciples here just as much as it was for the people being fed. What is it that Jesus is drawing the attention of the disciples to? There is an intent for them, obviously. Why? What's Jesus trying to get across in this time? Well, he's giving them a reminder. He's reminding them about who he is. Not just his ability, not just saying, I can feed these, these thousands of people. But he's reminding them of who is it that feeds the thousands of people. Who is Jesus, the one who's tearing the bread? Who, what is the character of him as he divides the fish and provides for these people as they are hungry and in the wilderness? Sometimes a parent says no. Sometimes a trusted friend speaks a word that we don't like to hear. And when that happens, does that mean that they're against you? Well, no, it's because they love you. It's because they're for you. And that love, though, as it's shown, sometimes is spoken. And that love sometimes is, is shown in, in nonverbal ways. And so when you have that word spoken that kind of rubs up against you, You have to sit back and think, what are all the ways that they have shown me their love and their care beforehand? You have to be reminded of who they are for you, not just in their words, but in their actions. And they might even bring up that also to you in those times. You know, I do love you. I do care for you. Remember, think back to how I've acted to you previously. All the love that I've shown you, all the words that I've spoken to you before. And Jesus, in this moment, gives his disciples a reminder of who he is. One of these nonverbal ways. And the question is, though, do they get it? Now, do they get it? Not only do they get what their expectation is for what Jesus would do, but afterwards, as they're reflecting upon Jesus and what he has just done, do they get it? Do they get who Jesus is? Now, they saw all the, the, the people's need. They saw their hunger. Right? They saw it on their faces. And they saw the bread. They took the bread and presented it to Jesus. They saw Jesus break and tear the bread. And then they took the bread from Jesus and they went and they distributed it to all the people. All right? They saw the leftovers. They went around with the baskets and had everyone put the, the scraps in and everything. They saw the satisfied people. They saw the smiles on their faces right, of just being fat and happy, of sitting there, just filled their bellies. What, so what must have been going through their minds about Jesus, though? 
What ought to have gone through their mind about Jesus? Well, not only that there was something special about this man, but that there's something divine about him. And so what ought do they have, what ought uh, to, to they have, have been going through their minds about Jesus? Well, they should have had this expectation of his compassionate intervention then. See, for these disciples, every day that they spent with Jesus throughout his ministry was a reminder over again of his character and person. I mean, think to, back to what they, everything that they must have seen, everything that they must have heard up to this point going around with Jesus, right? All of the miracles, all of the healings, everything that Jesus was doing, even just the times where, it, where it just, the, the, the gospels just say, and he healed people. Think of all of that that he saw on a daily basis. But now some of those times, some of those days, some of those instances would have been much bigger and more poignant reminders of who he was, all right? And this is just one such day when he does something as massive as feeding thousands of people like this. And so as we read, then, the feeding of the 4,000, not long after the reading of the 5,000, for us, then, is the wonder still there? Is the wonder still the same? And you think, well, maybe it's not, not quite, as, quite as much. Jesus did it once before. Maybe not as many people. Is the wonder still the same? It's the same Jesus acting in the same ways as he always did and as he continues to be. It was a reminder to the disciples of who it was that was with them. And it's a reminder also still to us as we read this here too. As we look at the story here and we think we are are reminded again as just as in when Jesus fed the 5,000 that Jesus is our life. That he took bread and he satisfied his followers. He took bread like the the sustenance of life, the very stuff that, that we need and he filled them. He gave them the means of life. In John uh, chapter 6, as as the the Apostle John records uh, the the feeding of the 5,000, John says, or records that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. What is that? Jesus as the bread of life. He's the one who nourishes. He's the one who sustains us. He is the one who feeds us. He He is the means of our life. And like the bread then was broken, at, like just as it was torn, as Jesus took it and tore it as he divided it to his people, you know what, so was he. Jesus was torn as he was the bread, as he gives life to the people, just as he tore the bread to give, to satisfy and nourish the people. You know what, Jesus was torn. Jesus' flesh as the bread was torn upon the cross As he went, as he was flogged, as he was nailed to the cross, he was torn. Why? So that we might have life. So that we might be nourished in him, fed in him, given life in him, just as we eat bread and are nourished and fed there. We are reminded that Jesus crucified, that torn and given for us, that he is our means of life. But see, Jesus, though, we're also, we think back again, though, how Jesus brings us into fellowship when he fed those 5,000 and when he feeds the 4,000 here too. 4,000 people sitting in the grass, right, sitting down with one another, eating with one another in little clusters, just like little picnics there. But 4,000 people who are not alike, again, on a different side of the Sea of Galilee, amongst a different sort of people, people who were both Jewish and Gentile, mixed together here, seated all together 
eating all together in little picnic fashion, fellowship with one another, but eating from the bread of life. Eating from Jesus, the bread that Jesus has given them. Now, people tend to divide into homogenous units, don't they? Because life just seems easier when we're around people who are like us. But that's not reflective, though, of the community of Jesus. He unites together every sort of person. People from all across the world. People from all across history. People from across cultures. Across whatever else that we want to say. And he unites us together in the deep, intimate fellowship in him. And the fellowship that we share together with one, with one another is that, that it, or it reflects that reality of how he brings us together. And the four th- when Jesus feeds the 4,000 here, it reminds us of our tendencies that we have to divide or to hold ourselves back from other people. Though we all sit around here at the same table of Christ. And we, we think about that. No, Jesus brings us together and that stokes us then. It stokes our hearts. It fans the flames into showing unity and fellowship with, with one another and not just talking about it. Because sometimes we love to talk about unity. We love to talk about how Jesus brings us together. But it's a lot harder work, though, to think about actually showing that in our real life, isn't it? But we also, though, think here, though, too, as we look at both of them, we are reminded again that Jesus is the Son the Son of God, that we're not reading a story just about a mere man, but we are reading the, the ministry of the Son of God who took on flesh, who came into the world for us. The Son of God who has compassion, who reflects the very heart of God, of God the Father, the one who fills us, the one who has compassion, and the one who came to give us life. We're reminded of all of these things here as we think again about Jesus giving the bread to the 4,000 people. And reminders are good. Reminders are good because they help us to keep in mind what's important. Right? Setting reminders on your phone, or writing things down on a, on a post-it note or a calendar, asking for reminders from someone else. See, none of those are signs of weakness. But they're actually means for us to, to, to overcome our forgetfulness. It keeps firmly in place what we hold as important. Because we're prone to forget, aren't we? We functionally forget so many things. Not just forgetting something and like, like, like we would an, an answer on, a, on an exam, we just can't recall it. We functionally forget because we forget who Jesus is for us in the middle of our circumstances or our situations or whatever it else it is. We forget the relevance of Jesus in our lives right there. See, we, well, we don't forget the fact. Oh yeah, I forgot that Jesus is there. No, we forget the significance of it. It, fly, it, it flies out of our consciousness in those times that we're distracted. And we fail to remember the implications of Jesus in a particular situation. We forget in times of panic. And that's why reminders are a good gift of God. They're not nagging reminders, but they're reminders of calling us back to consider and, and to understand. To understand who Jesus is as we live before the face of God every day and every moment of our lives. We're reminded in the times of worship. As it sets the weekly tone for our lives, we come here and we remember the promises of God. We remember who he is and God recalibrates our thinking as we come into his presence here. 
we're reminded as we enter into genuine Christian fellowship with one another, as we hear what God has been doing in the, the minds and hearts and lives of other people, what he's been teaching them, and then we also get to encourage others and remind them too by telling them what God has been doing in our lives also. We're reminded by, as we open up God's word thoughtfully, we're reminded in all the times that we engage in prayer, all of these things are gifts to us. To remind us of God's person and his character as we live before him in this world. But second, though, second point I want to see here, though, is not just remind us, but there's risks. There's risks of the unbelieving heart. Because right here on the heels of Jesus feeding the 4,000 people, we haven't seen them in a while, but here again, the, the Pharisees show up again. So Jesus gets into a boat with his disciples after he feeds everyone. They cross over the sea and they land on the shore and there they are. The Pharisees just waiting for them, waiting to argue. And they say, show us a sign. Verse 11, show us a sign. It was to test him. What sort of sign are they looking for? It's a sign to demonstrate his authority. To, de to demonstrate in whose name he was acting. In other words, show us who you really are. Authenticate yourself. And yet to say, that's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, was it necessary for Jesus to do this? Of course not. I mean, we just read about Jesus feeding 4,000 people for one thing. And they, these Pharisees had seen and heard so much. It's very likely that some of them were there for the feeding of the 5,000 people. They had heard of his acts. They had heard of his miracles. They heard everything about his, his ministry. This was, after all, the very heart of where he had been ministering and yet they still questioned him with a hardened heart, with an unbelieving heart. See, what would it have taken for them to believe? Would anything have convinced them, even with all that they had seen? What would it have taken for them, for Jesus to say or do, for them to believe? And that same question can be asked today among people who refuse to believe in Jesus, for the truth of God's existence and his acting in the world. What would it take, though, for you to believe? If you're asking for a sign, what would it take for you to truly believe? And the answers, reveal, the, the answers there reveal that, that some are already probably predisposed to not believing. Now, it's important to think that not all questioning is the same. There is a difference between having legitimate questions and, and seeking to know versus questioning in order to test. I'm sure you, we can all probably think of situations where, where this has occurred before, right? One takes the posture of trying to understand and it wants to know. And then the other one just stands with defiance and asks as it actively disbelieves. And I want to first address those here who might be genuinely seeking. Where are you looking? If you're genuinely seeking and asking questions about Jesus, where are you looking? Because Jesus has given us everything that we need to know to truly know him. It's not some special knowledge that we need to find somewhere or apart from what he's already given us. It's from his word. It's the word of Christ. And certainly it's a historical word. And if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk with you about that later. But ultimately, it's his word. The word of God here is the word of Christ. And it has real answers to whatever questions that you might have about him. And it's important for us as we are seeking to know him and to understand him, to listen to what he says about himself. 
Because if we're going anywhere else, then that's coming from humanly derived places, from humanly derived thoughts and sources. If I want to know about Christ, if I want to know about Jesus, I want to know what he says about himself. But if you're testing, though, if you're here testing in a little bit more defiant way, then you're taking the stance of the Pharisees. He's not going to give you the satisfaction of your defiance because he's not going to give you the time of day. He will respond in the same way as he did to the Pharisees in verse 12 here. He says, no sign will be given to this generation. And he gets into the boat and he goes away. They get back into the boat and they leave. And this is where we see the risk of unbelief actually also a little bit here in the hearts of not just the Pharisees, but also in the, in the disciples themselves. Now, the disciples must have still been thinking about bread. And because we find them arguing about bread, they're going across and they realize, wait a second, we've only got one loaf of bread left. And they, and they start arguing, well, who is it? Who forgot? Did you forget? I didn't forget. And Jesus, as he's sitting there, must have had all of this, you know, the, the, the 4,000 on his mind still, because he, he looks back and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. What's he talking about there? The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? Well, we think here, first of all, Pharisees and Herod, there's a common thread between the two there. And it's unbelief. It's misguided interest. All right, the Pharisees, we've just seen them here, but what do they have? They have hardened hearts. They have unbelieving hearts. They are interested, but not enough to believe, only to self-justify themselves. They are hardened. And then Herod, King Herod, we've we've seen him before, chapter 6. He also had this sort of unbelief, but an unbelief that was out of hostility. He was interested in Jesus, but for all of the wrong reasons here. And so both of them here, Pharisees and Herod, there's a hardness here to Jesus' own self-revelation about who he is. It's an unwillingness that he has to believe despite his clear authentications. But then, though, we think leaven. Okay, what's leaven? Well, it's, it's the stuff that makes your bread rise. And you bakers here know about this. You take a pinch, you know, whatever is yeast, sourdough, whatever, you throw it in your dough, and it's over time it spreads throughout the entire lump of dough, and it causes your bread to rise. Now, do you introduce a significant amount? Is it like 50% 50 yeast, 50% dough? No, it's a relatively small amount. Do you hear it working, like snap, crackle, pop? No, it's quiet. Does it spread fast? Not really. It's kind of gradual. But over time, though, that small amount that you put in your dough eventually leavens the entire lump. And that's what Jesus likens this unbelief and this hardness to. He says it starts out as just a little bit. It's not very much. It's nothing big. There's no loss of faith. Maybe there's not even a crisis there. But if left unchecked, it has a tendency to spread. Perhaps not fast, perhaps very slowly and subtly even. But over time, though, it takes over the entire heart. Jesus warns against this. It happens, against, or it happens to individuals, certainly, where a little bit of disbelief enters, nothing is done to resolve it, and then the entire heart is hardened in unbelief. But it also happens to communities of faith, too. It happens to institutions. 
And Jesus warns us here. He warns us because it destroys. He says, beware. That's a strong word. The stakes are high. And I think it would help for us to to get a little bit of an example here for us to think about this for a moment. Because I've been thinking here this this week about what does this look like? What's an example that we can think of where we see this little bit of leaven of this unbelief of this hardness and then going and spreading throughout the whole thing and destroying people? I think we can see it in this, the rise in acceptance of modern conceptions of human sexuality within the church. It happens frequently. And it's happening with increasingly frequent and often in similar fashion. It gets away from the biblical view of of an intent of sexuality, the, the God's view that he's given us there. And it begins to displace that with modern and secular conceptions instead that begin to influence our views and erode. And at first it starts out with toleration and then the acceptance and affirmation and then a celebration of what displeases God. And then those individuals and churches go so far away from biblical orthodoxy that it begins to not even become recognizable. And I don't say this out of arrogance. I don't say this in in a way of othering, but I say it, though, as a warning here. It's a modern example of what this looks like. It's dangerous. It's detrimental to our faith, and it has ramifications. And it illustrates the importance of grounding ourselves in what Jesus clearly says in his word. We want to stay anchored to it. We want to keep anchored to it there. And it's important because if you do have questions about these things, we're not, Jesus himself is not even saying, just, just check them at the door. Bring them, but rather say what, or bring your questions here, but look at what he has to say about them. And don't look for answers in other places, but rather look at what he says. Look, look at what he says and even wrestle through it with all of the difficulties because it might be difficult for some of us. But you know what? Who gets the final say? Is it us or is it what God says? The third point here that we see, the last one is repetition is intended to be remembered. Repetitions intended to be remembered. When we, re- re- when we repeat things, that's what we're doing, right? We want them to be remembered. And Jesus expresses a, this frustration at the, the lack of understanding from these disciples in verse 17. It's like everything that he had just done twice now have been totally lost on them. Hey, are you really thinking about bread when I'm with you? What just happened? I fed the 4,000. Hey, what happened before that? Do you remember when I fed the 5,000? Don't you get that you have everything that you need with me? Don't you get who I am? He does this by getting them to recall the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. The event was repeated, and then he's repeating the story back to them again. Because what he's trying to do is getting them to think and understand by means of repetition, thinking again and again and again on it. And repetition for us usually has one of, two, one of two effects. One is that it can desensitize us, can it? Right? We just become overly familiar. We hear it over and over and we just desensitize. We're, de- we des- we're desensitized to it. Or we hear it over and over and over and that repetition, it sticks with us, doesn't it? I mean, think of all that they had seen walking with Jesus in this time. They had seen healings. They had seen demons cast out. 
etc. over and over daily on a massive scale. And even here as something as extraordinary as feeding a group of thousands of people. What's it? it happens twice now, doesn't it? And could it be that they, as they walked with Jesus, as they saw everything, that they became desensitized to a degree after a while? That in witnessing the acts of Jesus, they lost their wonder? That they grew overly familiar with it all and their senses of understanding began to grow dull? See, repetition was for the good of the disciples. They were the ones who witnessed it twice. It was intended to enliven them. Right? Jesus gets them to go and think back on that once again. And so as we also then read, as we hear, then let's not let the repetition of Jesus' acts here grow dull to us also. They're given to us over and over to invigorate us, to enliven our faith also as we remember as well. Right? The, the, the failure to remember turns our faith and everything involved in it from liveliness uh, into rote or empty tradition. If we don't remember, right? If we just check our, our, our brains at the door and we're involved in just this repetition over and over, then we're just going to turn into empty tradition. We're going to walk through it mindlessly. And we're going to lose the wonder. We're going to lose the wonder of Jesus and all of who he is. We're going to lose the wonder of the grace of Jesus and how he has shown that to us upon the cross, upon giving us his promises. We're going to lose the wonder of his mercy that he has for the undesirable, the mercy that he has for the sinner. We're going to lose the wonder of the incarnation if it just is repeated to us in a way that allows us to, or that, that has us to not think about it. And it turns it into being empty. But see, the, repet- the repetition isn't the cure for unbelief. It's not just simply beating it in our minds over and over. Because in the face of unbelief, repetition without heart, repetition without faith is the breeding ground of cynicism. When you are having a hard time believing, the last thing that you want to hear are empty platitudes or rote words or just simple truths spoken without heart. But repetition, though, when it is accompanied with the right partners, it brings understanding and trust. And that requires the mind. It requires the heart. It requires the Holy Spirit working there, too. And when when repetition happens with the Spirit, when repetition happens with an engaged mind and an engaged heart, then that's where faith is born and that's where faith grows See, we use certain words and phrases in church, don't we? We, we, use, we, re, we repeat them over and over as part of our common vernacular. We use these gospel words. I mean, the word gospel, sometimes we say it so much that we almost forget its meaning. We say the words grace, faith, hope, all these things, they're repeated from our lips, right? They're, they're in our midst. It just like is the atmosphere in which we live. But as we speak words like that, As we hear words like that, do we just repeat those words like we would any other word? Does it just come empty, like an empty phrase off of our lips? Or do we truly believe it? When we speak words like that, do we understand grace? Do we understand faith? Do we understand hope? Do we understand love? Our worship service here every week has a liturgy. It has a structure to it. 
right? It is, it, it is a repeated, generally pretty much the same every week. Different parts, you know, the interchangeable parts come in and out, but the same structure week after week after week. But does that mean we approach it in a rote way? Is it just some traditional thing that we do? It's intended to teach us through repetition, but that means that we have to be engaged in it. Right? It's intended for us to remember and then for us to use our minds and have our hearts engaged in our worship week after week after week. Because in this time, we are walking through how we live before God, that we are called by God. We're walking through how we live our lives by repentance and grace. We are reminded again about the hearing and receiving that we have from God. And then we give him our praise in turn. That's what happens as we are doing this week after week after week. The repetition here sets the tone for how we live. It reorients us back again to living a life that's formed around God in all of his grace, in all of his truth, in all of his beauty. And we do the same thing with the Lord's Supper, too. We, we repeat it frequently. We come to the table weekly. And we can do so in a way that loses its power and the wonder of Jesus Christ crucified and his promise for us if we come to it just because, eh, it's what we do every week. Or what we can receive it as intended, which is by faith. As we are receiving, again, over and over, week after week, the promise of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, raised for sinners, who will come again for sinners to renew all things, and that we know that Christ Jesus is present with us right now as he's giving us that, that promise again by his Spirit. We can, we can receive it week after week in a, in, a, in a repeated way that will benefit us so much as we are recalling again what it is that we have bread and we have cup in our hand. It's repeated again and again, but you know what? We do it week after week because we need him. And as we come to the table soon here, then don't receive the bread and the cup without thinking. Do so with your mind engaged. Do so with your heart engaged. Because Jesus gives us this sacrament to be repeated frequently for our good. To remind us of the mystery of the faith that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, that Christ will come again. And to celebrate his faithfulness as we eat, as we drink, knowing what he did and believing with our hearts what he will do for us again. Let's pray. Father God, we all come before you with different parts of stubbornness in our own hearts. Ways that we perhaps are prone to unbelieving. Ways that we are prone to just simply falling into regular rhythms in a mindless way. But Lord, you are so good by giving us reminders. Reminders of the things that really matter. Reminders of Jesus Christ for us. Reminders of your presence by your spirit. Reminders, Father, of your love for us. And so let's hold fast to your reminders that you give us. Let's forsake all other things that would want to pull us away and focus upon what you have given us here for the purpose of Jesus taking precedence in our lives because he's worthy of it, he deserves it, and because we desperately need him. We pray that you would prepare our hearts as we come to the table that we do not come 
based upon our own merits or anything that we have done, but we simply hold out our hands, our empty hands in faith, receiving from Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.